Well, good morning again. When I was growing up in the church, I had certain parts of the Bible that I enjoyed more than others. Anyone willing to admit there are certain parts of the Bible you enjoy reading more than others? <laughs> and uh, I loved the Gospels because I loved learning about Jesus. I loved Revelation because it was weird and, and kept me up at night in fear. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I liked the stories in the Old Testament. I just found them like larger than life and Jonah and the well and David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den. And it was always just amazing. And what I love about the Old Testament stories is that they have this way of just zooming in on someone's life and teaching us some really important things, not just about that person, but about God. And as we begin this five-week series through the book of Ruth, which I know is a favorite story of many, uh, we're going to learn some really important things. The book of Ruth teaches us about the sovereignty of God which means that he can take anything and work out his purposes and plans. And I know some of you are very grateful that that's true, that God can take anything and work out his purposes and plans. We're also going to learn about the kindness of people and what a difference kindness and loyalty can make in this world. And then also we're going to see the way that God has a plan to save and redeem this world. And so we're going to spend five weeks studying the book of Ruth. And this morning, what I wanted to do as we lean into this Old Testament story is kind of help us understand how we should approach Old Testament stories when we read them and when we study them. And there's three mistakes that people often make with Old Testament stories. None of these are like terrible mistakes, and none of them are bad on their own. But if this is all we do with Old Testament stories, then I think we miss the point. And the first mistake that people make a lot with Old Testament stories is they moralize them. In other words, they reduce these beautiful stories about robust characters into a simple moral lesson. This is how you should live. Be like this person, don't be like this person. The problem is that Christianity is not the same thing as morality. Amen? Christianity and morality are not the same thing. Morality is fine, the way in which we live our lives, but do you know that moralism has never saved anyone? Moralism has never set anyone free. Moralism has never changed anyone's heart. And these stories are so much more than just lessons on how we ought to live our lives. One of the problems with seeing the Old Testament stories just as morality tells is that these characters are wildly inconsistent. So like we look at a person like David and we're like, oh, we should be like David. Look at him. He's a shepherd boy. He's humble. He, he fights Goliath. He becomes the king. And then we keep reading and we're like, oops, <laughs> oops, oops. These are not heroes. These are people like you and I. There's only one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. All of these characters are pointing us to Jesus, that there's a true and better David, that there's a true and better Moses, that there's a greater Ruth, and his name is Jesus. And so we can't just reduce these to morality tales because morals is about who you are and how you should live, but the Bible is primarily about Jesus and the life that he lived in your place. Another mistake that we make is we personalize these stories. We make them all about us, and we think that we're the character in the story. You're not the character in the story. We don't put ourselves into these stories. Many of the Old Testament stories actually describe behavior that we should never actually do. The entire book of Judges, for example. You never want to do most of the things in that book. And the way that I say this, the way that many people say this, is that Old Testament stories, while they are descriptive, they are not prescriptive. All right. So parents, you know this, when you're raising your children and you're trying to warn them of the dangers of, your, uh, of their choices and you, show, you tell them about some of the choices that you've made in the past and some of the consequences that you've paid and, and you are describing for them things but you are not prescribing that they do the same, right? 
And the Bible is the same in the Old Testament. They are accurately describing things that happen, but they're not saying we should go do the same. So because the Israelites marched around the wall seven times, it doesn't mean that if we want to go buy a home, we say, God, I'm going to go march around that home seven times, and you're going to give it to me. All right? That's not how we use the Old Testament. Just because Gideon threw a fleece out doesn't mean that we should always throw fleeces out when we have to make a decision. So don't personalize the Old Testament stories to the point where you miss the point of these stories is not about you, it's about an actual person, an actual place who learns something about themselves and God. And then we also tend to allegorize stories. You know, there's a difference between a story and an allegory. A story actually happened, it's real people, real places, real times. And allegories, everything represents something else. And sometimes we do this, like David fights Goliath, he goes to the stream, he gets five rocks, and so we think, well, the five rocks must represent courage and bravery and strength. And And it's like, no, that's... Not at all what the story is about. That's not what it's there. I mean, those things, that's true. It's good to have those things. But these stories are not allegories. These are real stories. And so we have to avoid some mistakes that we might make with Old Testament stories. When we come to narratives, we have to remember these are real stories that happen to real people in real places at real times. And there's real truth for us to get out of it. But we have to do the hard work. So how do we approach Old Testament stories? There's two things we have to do. And I'm going to actually do it in our message this morning. Number one, we have to ask the right questions. And number two, we have to ask the most important question. All right? So first, we have to ask the right questions. And the right questions when we study scripture are almost always about the context of what we're reading. And we do this all the time. You know, if, um, if my 13-year-old come home, comes home from school and says, this teacher yelled at me in school today, what's my first question going to be? What am I looking for? I'm looking for context. What happened? What was going on? Did this teacher yell at anyone? By the way, teachers never yell at Lilia. She's perfect. But, but it's hypothetical, hypothetical, hypothetical. She didn't get detention this year. Hypothetical. Um, you know, what happened? And I want context that's going to help me understand. So I don't ask questions like, what color shirt was he wearing? It, it's context, but it doesn't matter, right? And so I want context that matters. So I might say, um, does he yell at other kids? What did you do? What was happening? What's class been like for the last week? Is this a difficult class? Is it whatever? You know, so I'm trying to gather as much. And so when we come to Old Testament stories, we're trying to get context. What else was happening? What was going, where are we in history? This story, Ruth, happened three to 4,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. So we got to do a lot of work to understand what was life like back then. What's the context of the scripture passage? What was said before and what was said after it? So we're going to actually do that a little bit together this morning. I'm going to give you a little uh, insight into how we approach this text. But then the second thing we have to do is not just ask the right questions, but ask the most important question. And the most important question that you'll ever ask when you read any passage of scripture is this. What does this passage reveal about the nature and character of God? If you start with that question, you're already ahead in the game. Instead of saying, what does this passage have to say to me? Or what does this passage say about this issue? We make passages say things about issues when they never said anything about those issues. Instead, what does this passage reveal to me about the nature and character of God? And we're going to do that together this morning. So I hope you're up for it. You don't really have a choice. You're here. So we're going through it. All right, Ruth chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wives and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Sound like Klingon names, right? They were were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. 
they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives. They married local women. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Okay, so 10 years, her husband dies. 10 more years, they live in Moab. And at some point in those 10 years, both Malon and Chilean died. So here's Naomi, the woman, left without her two sons and her husband. It's not a bright start. It's not a happy start. It's actually pretty terrible, really terrible. And so let's ask some questions about this text, some context questions. When did it happen? Well, we know right from verse 1 it says, in the days when the judges ruled. This was a specific time in the history of Israel. In fact, there's a book in the Bible called Judges. And we preached from that book a couple years ago. And in the time of the judges, it was some of the darkest, most dysfunctional times in the history of Israel. See, they didn't have a king yet. They weren't a nation yet. They were a federation of tribes. And so everybody kind of did what they wanted to do. There were rulers and stuff, but there was no centralized, organized authority or power. And it was chaotic. And the Israelites at this time were constantly getting into sin cycles where they would stop trusting in God and they would start turning to other gods and then everything would go sideways on them. In fact, the verse that summarizes the entire time when the judges ruled is in the book of Judges. It's the last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21 25. Listen to what it says. It says, in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. In those days there was no king, everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. And when I read that verse, I thought, boy, 4,000 years later, (laughs) not much has changed. Not much has changed. Everyone still pretty much does what's right in their own eyes. And actually, I mean, we, we live in a time and, and we live in a society where this is a problem for us because there's this hope that maybe we've thrown off truth and standards, that, that these outdated, constricting, repressive understandings of right or wrong, that we've thrown them all off. But the problem with the idea of throwing off truth and throwing off morality and throwing off a sense of right, right and wrong is that, no, listen, no one actually lives that way. People might say that they don't want standards of truth and right and wrong, but no one actually lives it that way. Everyone functions with some sense of what is right and what is wrong. If you don't think so, just wait till the next time you're in the checkout line at Wegmans and you're in the seven item or less line and someone in front of you rolls in front of you with 20 items. You have a sense of what's right and wrong. And you'll say, what kind of monster (laughs) does this to me? The next time you get cut off in traffic, you have a standard of morality. The next time you're in a theater and the people behind you are talking during the movie, one of my least favorite things, you're going to be like, who raised this person? What is wrong with this person? Every single person functions with a standard of right or wrong. And even though I'm using kind of fun examples, this is true in every area of life, our ethics and our morals. So here's the question before us. The question is not, do you have a standard of right and wrong? The question is, where did you get your standard from? In whose eyes? And in the time of the judges, everybody was living as things seemed to be in their own eyes. So against that backdrop, that that helps with context, right? At this time, we started on a story the story of Ruth, and what I find really frustrating about these first five verses that I just read is it's very ambiguous, which means it's very unclear as to 
the motivations behind what people are doing here. Why did Elimelech leave? Should he have left? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it right? Was it wrong? Was it okay that they married Moabite women? God had talked about that, the dangers of that. Was it right? Was it sin? Was it wrong? And we're left with actually none of those questions very clearly answered in these first five verses. And we can't force answers in because the Bible doesn't give us answers. We can't make answers where we think there should be answers. And so we have this question before us. And what we do know, because we need to focus on what we do know, is that there was a famine in the land. And a famine in an agrarian society was a massive problem. There was no way to eat. There was no way to work. There was no way to trade. There was no room for commerce. Famines shut everything down. And in the time of the judges, if you read the book of Judges, famines happened often. And there really were three reasons that famine would come to the people of Israel. Number one was sometimes it was just the natural course of weather patterns. Sometimes things in this world just go bad because we're in a world that's not perfect. We're in a world that's broken. We're in a world that's under the curse. Not everything is because someone is out to get us. Sometimes life stinks because life stinks. And sometimes that's why the famine came. Number two, sometimes it came because of the sin of someone else. You ever been affected by someone else's sin? Have you ever seen the ripple effect of your sins in other people's lives? And so one example is with Gideon. When Gideon was a judge, the Midianites, not the Moabites, these are different people, the Midianites, their whole tactic of oppression against Israel was called starvation warfare. And what they would do is they would wait until the harvest was ready and they would come in, almost like the grasshoppers from the movie Ants. Uh, Bugs Life, um, they would come in and they would destroy everything before the people of Israel could get to the food. They would take it for themselves or they would raise it to the ground, burn it. So sometimes it was other people's sinful actions, but then sometimes famine came to Israel because of their sin. They were trusting in other gods and God actually used famine to kind of wake them up and to show them their need for him. Never punitive only, always restorative. Always that they would see their need for God and come back to him. And the whole book of Judges is this cycle of disobedience and punishment and famine and and slavery and then cry out to God and then he would raise up a judge and then they would serve God for 30 years, 40 years, 80 years and then they would turn from him again over and over and over. And here we have this famine, which by the way, just to look bigger for a second, why is there, this question cannot be easily answered, so forgive me for doing this quickly, but why is there suffering in this world? Why do bad things happen to good people? And we're kind of left with some of the same answers. Number one, sometimes it's because we live in a world that's under a curse. People get sick. People get diagnoses. People get in accidents. And things happen. And sometimes we look for meaning where it's just like, this is a world that's not the way it should be, and it's not the way that it's always going to be. And we talked about that on Easter Sunday, that Sunday in a world where nothing gets newer, God is going to make everything new. Sometimes that's why suffering happens. Sometimes it happens because of other people's choices. And, and you suffer because someone else made a choice that affects your life. And sometimes it's because of the choices that we make. We invite suffering into our own lives. But we don't always know the answers to this. And, and the, the idea of famine in the Old Testament was always accompanied with the hope that God still provided. Even in the famine, God didn't forget his people. He provided for his people. And so they leave Bethlehem. He lives in Bethlehem, and they leave Bethlehem because of the famine, which is sort of ironic because Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. So they leave the house of bread, go to look for food. Here's what their journey might have looked like. This is Bethlehem back then. They travel north up to Jerusalem. They, they're 
they're about five miles south of Jerusalem, so they go up to Jerusalem. This whole journey from Bethlehem to Moab is 70 to 100 miles. It would have taken them about a week because they would have been on feet, on foot, of course. So they come up to Jerusalem. They would have gone all the way up to Jericho because at Jericho there was a forge, a ford that you could cross the River Jordan. They would have crossed the River Jordan. They would have come down um, to this highway, which was the North and South King's Highway. They would have caught it up here, and they would have come down through Reuben. Now, this is all still considered the tribes of Israel. And then finally, they went all the way down to Moab, which is not where Israel was. In fact, Moab was an enemy of Israel. And this is how they go from here to here. And at this point in the story, as we're asking the right questions, one of the right questions we have to ask is this. Were they wrong to do this? Was Elimelech and Naomi in sin? Did they disobey God by leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab? And the short answer is we don't actually know. Because again, the text doesn't actually tell us. But here's some context. Before the time of Judges, it was considered the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all three of those men were involved with famines multiple times. Two times, Abraham and Sarah, it's in Genesis chapter 12 and 20, there's a famine, and God doesn't tell them to stay, and he doesn't tell them to go, but they go. Then, in Isaac's story, which is found in Genesis chapter 26, Isaac starts to leave because of a famine, but where he gets, he intends to go further, and God speaks to him very clearly, don't go any further, stay here, and Isaac obeys. And then Jacob's is maybe the most famous because Jacob is the father of Joseph. And Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt. And there's a famine. And Jacob's whole family leaves where they're at to go to Egypt where Joseph is in power now as a ruler next to Pharaoh. And in that case, and towards the end of the book of Genesis, God tells Jacob, go. Leave where you're at and go. It's my will for you. So there's three examples. One time God says nothing. One time God says stay. One time God says go. And Elimelech and Naomi would have known these stories. And so they could have had precedent for going, it's a famine. If Abraham left and Isaac left and Jacob left, then we can leave. But here's the thing. In all three of the occasions when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob left, there were bad results. Every single time something bad came out of it. And so we don't really know. But what we do know is that there's a progression. It says it in the text. Maybe you didn't catch it. But it says that they were sojourners, then they settled, and then the last verb is they remained. So there is this progression that they were just traveling. I wonder if maybe they didn't intend to end up here. They left Bethlehem thinking maybe there's food in Jerusalem. Nope, maybe there's food in Jericho. Oh, maybe on the other side of the river where there's a different weather pattern, there'll be food over in this, the tribe of Reuben. But instead of that, they keep traveling all the way down south to Moab. They go from sojourning to settling to remaining. They land up in Moab. In Moab, these two sons, Malon and Chilion, they marry Moabite wives, which again is kind of not allowed because God was saying as you marry people from other, um, who worship other gods, it's going to change your heart to other gods, and that happened all the time. This is not, by the way, a statement against um, marrying someone of a different ethnicity or different race at all. This is specifically about a religious thing that these, these other people worshipped and loved other gods, and God was concerned for the hearts of Israel. But they do it. Now, Malon and Chilion, their names mean sickness and destruction. Anyone want that for a future kid? <laughs> Malon and Chilion, sickness and destruction. And the commentators say that most likely that was not actually their names. Who names their son sickness and destruction? But instead, what the author of Ruth is saying to us is, this is what happened to these two men, sickness and destruction. And that's what we know. And then the story ends, and Naomi is alone. She has no husband. She has no sons. She has no future. Now, 
we've just tried to ask a lot of the right questions to get to a point where we can now ask the most important question. What does this text reveal about the nature and character of God? There's not much there, right? When I read it this week on Monday, I was reading the five verses. I'm like, how am I going to preach this? There's like nothing here to talk about. And obviously I found some stuff to talk about. But what is the most important question is, what does this reveal about the character and nature of God? And the first thing is this, and I hope this, this end here, these next 10 minutes as we finish, encourages your heart. The first thing is this, is that God is a seeing God. He's a seeing God. Listen, Naomi loses her husband, making her a widow, and then loses her two sons. And so here's the situation. She has no male relative in her life that's close to her. And at this time in history and at this place in the world, that was about the worst thing that could happen. You had no one to protect you. You had no one to provide for you. I know that's not the way it is today, but that's the way it was then. The level of vulnerability to a widow who had no close male relative was off the charts. The things that could, she'd be forced into, the things that could happen to her, the lack of hope and future and opportunity that would be provided for her. Here she is, a woman in a foreign land. She's a refugee in Moab, living amongst the enemies of God with no, with, with no husband, with no sons, with no hope, with all the regrets. I'm sure she thought at some point, we made a huge mistake. We never should have left Bethlehem. Surely we're being punished. Surely we brought this upon ourselves. This is it. This is the end. She's a nobody in nowhere, and yet in the Bible, this story is about her. I know it's called Ruth, but Naomi is right at the heart of this story the whole way. And here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. You may feel like a nobody from nowhere, but God sees you. He sees you. See, we live in a world in a society where it's like, if, you, if you're going to be seen, you better be beautiful, better be interesting, you better be important, you better be influential, You better be powerful, wealthy. You gotta have something. You gotta be a contributor. You gotta be productive. You gotta be whatever it is. And yet here's a woman who has nothing going for her, but at the introduction, it's all about her. It's her story. And we're gonna see how God uses this story. She's not where she should be, and still he sees her. God sees those who other people overlook. And this morning, the question is, do you really believe that God sees you this morning? That he really sees you? you. That's scary and comforting at the same time, isn't it? Because on one hand, you're like, oh no, God sees me. He sees everything. He sees my thoughts. He sees my inconsistencies. He sees, he sees my fears. He sees all the ways that I'm not who I want everyone else to think that I am. He sees it. But also, he keeps looking at us, which is amazing. See, when God sees us in our mess, it doesn't cause him to turn his head away from us. Instead, it causes him to turn his heart towards us. This is the God that we have. This is the God that we serve. He sees us. He sees Naomi and he keeps his eyes fixed upon her. The second thing that we learn here is that God is not just a seeing God, but he's a redeeming God. I love this, that God redeems, listen to this, some of you really got to grab hold of this. He redeems the messes of our lives no matter how we got there. No matter how we, see, you know, when I walk into a room and I see a mess in the room, what's the first thing most people ask? Who made this mess? We want to know who's responsible. We want to hold somebody responsible for the mess in that room. And we're the same way with each other. Well, okay, I see you're in a lot of chaos. I see you're in a crisis. But, like, did you make your own mess? (laughs) Or did someone make this mess for you? 
And God doesn't show up asking that question. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, when we look at this story, we don't know for sure what role disobedience played, a lack of truth or trust or faith. Uh, Did they violate the covenant? We don't really know for sure because the author of Ruth doesn't make it super clear. But I think maybe that's the point. That's not what God's interested in. God is not interested in figuring out who's responsible for what. God is interested in redeeming the mess no matter how it came to us. As a society, we're, we're okay with redemption stories as long as the person has proved that they deserve it. They've earned the redemption. Prove you deserve a second chance. Make reparations. Suffer for your mistake. And then we will celebrate you. We make ourselves the judge and jury of people, whether or not they deserve a restoration and redemption based on the series of events that led them to their darkest hours. But here's the thing about the God that we serve. Not only does he not require that, he doesn't even offer you that option. There's no convincing him that you didn't do, uh, you didn't get yourself in the mess, and so then he'll get you out of it. It's none of that. On Good Friday, when we gathered for Good Friday services, Pastor Bill said something I think is so powerful. He was talking about the thief on the cross next to Jesus with his dying death after a lifetime of crime, calling out to Jesus and Jesus saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Pastor Bill said, that tells us two things are always true. Number one, there's no such thing as a lost cause. That criminal woke up that morning and thought, this is it, it's over. I've wasted my entire life, and now I'm going to die on a cross. He was the definition of a lost cause. But in the final moments, he called out to Jesus, and Jesus said, I speak up for you. You're with me. There's no such thing as a lost cause. Number two, there's no such thing as working your way in. The thief had no opportunity for reparations. He couldn't pay the people back that he stole from He couldn't go to therapy. He couldn't go to rehab. He couldn't make things right. He couldn't become a productive member of society. He was taking his last breaths. And yet, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. God is a redeeming God. The redeeming work of God is set in motion, is not set in motion by you. The restoring work of God is not set in motion by you. The rescuing work of Jesus was not initiated by you. One of the best um, illustrations I've heard of this is from a book by a guy named Roger Olson. And he said that sometimes people envision God rescue them this way. Ready? This way. I'm going to give you two examples. Number one, this is how I often thought of God rescuing me. I was drowning in a pit filled with water. I was desperately trying to stay afloat, and I was crying out for help. God heard me cry, and he came to me in the pit, and he offered me a rope, and he pulled me out while I climbed out. I mean, a lot of people think that's what it means to be saved. You realize you're in a mess. You've done everything you can to get out of the mess. You can't get yourself out of the mess. You scream out to God. God happens to hear you screaming. He runs over, throws you a rope. He pulls you out. You climb out. You guys get to the top, slap hands. You're saved, right? Instead, Roger Olson says, here's a better example. I'm unconscious in the bottom of the pit. I don't even realize my predicament. I don't even realize my situation. And God calls to me. And then God fills the pit with water, which causes me to slowly rise to the top and sets me free. All I have to do is not hold myself down. All I do is not resist the work of God, resist the grace that is available. Here's what all of this means. None of us worked our way in. None of us earned our way in. None of us redeemed ourselves. The only thing we brought to salvation was the sin that made the salvation necessary, which means every single one of us came to Jesus from a place of weakness and not from a place of strength. Not with our resume. Not with all the good things that we've done. None of that gets us in. The only thing that gets us in is what Jesus has done for us. He is a redeeming God. I'm going to ask Pastor Anthony to join me. We're going to sing in just a minute. 
The last thing we see in these first five verses is simply this, that God is a working God, which means he's always working in every season of our life. I, I, wanna, I want you to let the grief of Naomi sit with you for a second. The grief of Naomi. She lost her husband. She lost her home. She lost her sons. She lost everything. Over the course of, we don't know if it was 10, we know it was at least 10 years, maybe 10, 15 years, she's a refugee in a country that hates her and her people, doesn't want her there. She loses her husband. Then her sons get married. Then she loses her sons. And I'm telling you, like, the problem with reading the Bible sometimes is that we just keep reading and we're like, oh, look, it actually works out really great for her. I mean, good for Naomi. I'm sure she really was grateful. But hold on. She was a real person. Like, she really walked through this season. And some of the, sometimes I think we're in such a, as Christians sometimes, we're in such a hurry to rush through sorrow and grief. Let's just get through it as quickly as we can. But sometimes we just have to sit with it. We just have to be with it. And in the midst of sitting with it, we can't lose sight of this truth, that he, didn't, he, isn't, he never stopped working in Naomi's life. He never stopped working. Yeah, life didn't go the way that she thought it would go or the way that she wanted it to go, but he continued to work. See, we, we'll read on. We're gonna do, five, we're gonna do four more weeks. If you're depressed this morning, the story gets better. Uh, come back. But we're gonna see next week that she has a daughter-in-law that's unbelievable. The loyalty of Ruth, this Moabite woman who shouldn't know about the faithfulness of God. She embodies the faithfulness of Yahweh and Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David through whom comes Jesus. We're going to see in a couple weeks the kindness of a man named Boaz who is generous and loving towards Ruth. We're going to see how God provides for Naomi and provides. We're going to see how God restores everything. But do you know who didn't see it at the end of verse 5? Naomi. She didn't have, she didn't have the luxury of reading ahead. And you and I don't have the luxury of reading ahead in our own lives. But whatever chapter you're in, it's not your last chapter. And God's still writing. And maybe you can't see it now, but I believe someday you'll see it. He's working. He's a working God. When I was in college, fall of 97, um, seems like a long time ago, I did an internship in New York City, and I was in Queens. Needed to get a haircut. Didn't know where to go. Found a barber shop in Astoria, Queens. I walked in. Very little English was spoken in that barber shop. And I just communicated. I pointed at my head. I was like, you know why I'm here. <laughs> you only do one thing. Uh, uh, I need a haircut. And so most times when you go get your haircut, a few things happen. Number one, usually they ask you, what kind of haircut do you want? Right? That seems normal. Not this guy. Normally, um, they will cut and then stop and then move you, cut and then stop. Not this guy. He never stopped the whole time. And normally, they only cut with one hand. This guy was ambidextrous, apparently. <laughs> He had scissors in both of his hands. And I sat down, I started to tell him the haircut I wanted. He's like, he goes, I know, I know, I know, I know. And for five minutes, his hands, like Edward Scissor's hand, was just that. And the whole time I was thinking, he's going to cut my throat. He's going to cut my ear off. And I was like, I don't think I breathed for the whole haircut. I was so afraid. And I was just sitting there, like, closing my eyes, like, oh, Jesus, please protect me right now. What have I done? And about five minutes, which felt like five lifetimes, he says, done. And I opened my eyes and I looked at the mirror. And to this day, I think it's the best haircut I've ever had. And I was like, what? 
that's like a magician. He's a sorcerer. Like, how did he, how did he do that? And I remember leaving the barber shop, going back to tell all my friends about it. And this thought occurred to me, just because I couldn't see what he was doing, didn't mean he couldn't see what he was doing. And just because I didn't know what he was doing, didn't mean that he didn't know what he was doing. And listen, if you're a Naomi this morning and you're feeling the weight of loss and grief and sorrow, and all of us are, we've, the last couple of years we've come through, we've all lost a lot. Just know that just because you can't see what God is doing doesn't mean God doesn't see what he's doing. And just because you don't know what God's doing doesn't mean that he doesn't know what he's doing. He is a seeing God, a redeeming God, and a working God. And my prayer for each of you is that you'll see, him, you'll see those truths at work in your lives even today. Let's pray together.